Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to These Go to 11. Once again, I'm your host, Nathan Bell, sitting across from me, Greg Dutcher. Greg, how are you doing today? You know, I'm not in, <laughs> I'm not in mourning, dude. How many times have the uh, listeners, you know, who many of you I know have said, hey, we're not, we're not sports people. So in the short and sweet spirit, I will keep it. Uh, Ravens, uh, there's a Greek word to characterize their play yesterday, a, a, a biblical Greek word. It's called lame sauce. Um, and that's what they put on the field. Just really quickly, they had a bye week, right? So they're mm-hmm. rested. Then they play at home at M&T, where they, in previous years, had a great record. They played the Jacksonville Jaguars. Okay, <laughs> not, not New England, not Green Bay, uh, not the Seahawks, the Jaguars. <laughs> and they lost in a painful way. Two and seven, hoping we don't win another game, get the top draft pick. Yep. But... While I may be down about that, I'm excited about our guest. That's right. We have Howard Griffith joining us. He is um, pastor and teacher. He's also written a book. Um, for those of you who maybe have been wondering, we've been having a lot of authors on lately. Uh, PNR Publishing, a uh, publishing company, has contacted us and uh, graciously has set up meetings with all these authors that they've had. And Howard Griffith is one of them. He's written a fantastic book, Spreading the Feast. Um, it's Meditations on the Lord's Supper. Um, and so we're going to be spending the bulk of our podcast talking about that today. Um, so we want to jump right in. Howard, how are you doing today? Doing fine. Greetings. Um, we want to get to know you a little bit. This is our first time uh, chatting with you. Um, audience, you know, obviously some may know you, some may not. So give us a little bit about yourself, your bio, friends, family, what you do, all that fun stuff. Sure, sure. Well, I've, I've been a believer since I was 15 years old. Uh, grew a tremendous amount in, in when I was in college. Uh, then after college, I uh, went to seminary and uh, helped plant a church in Richmond, Virginia. I was pastor there for about 25 years. Wow. And then uh, during that time, I was able to do Ph.D. studies. The last eight years, I've been a professor of systematic theology at Reformed Seminary in Washington, D.C., so I, I have uh, I have a wonderful family, a wife. I have five children and one granddaughter and another one on the way. And oh, congrats. <laughs> fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. Thank yeah, you. And, and if I can just jump in there, Howard, you have uh, you are a seminary professor that I, I now prize because you pastored, you said, for 25 years. And um, that's not a knock against other seminary professors. It's mm-hmm. a knock against... Some students, like I was, <laughs> who asked a number of questions when I was in seminary in my early to mid-20s that at the time seemed really important to me. And now that I've pastored for almost 20 years, I, I've often thought, man, I'd love to go back to seminary and <laughs> ask good questions. So um, I'm just wondering, you, you um, having that actual in-the-trenches experience – do you find that makes your opportunity to you know, help shape young minds, mold men of the next generation uh, all the more enjoyable? Well, it's a tremendous privilege to do what I do. You know, I love the Word. I've had some experience that's been personally humbling, mm. which you really need, you know? Yes, and, yes. And it, it just gives me a tremendous opportunity to love and serve and kind of pour myself into these young folks. That's so great, Howard. Um, we want to dive right in because this book is just, it's its so great. And we want to start off with just um, some basic questions. My first question to you is, um, why a book on communion? Sure. Well, um, 
I, I did not grow up in a, a church tradition that, that took communion very seriously. It was just kind of something every now and then. Um, but as I studied theology, and then especially in our experience in planting a new church, uh, we, we deserved, decided to have uh, the Lord's Supper every week because we believe it's a, an actual way that God builds up his people. Mm-hmm. And the uh, blessing that God gave us over that period of time was very rich. And, and yet, in seminary studies, there's so much to study, sometimes you don't pay attention to the Lord's Supper and baptism, maybe quite the way you should. Mm-hmm. And I, I just wanted to share some of the, the blessing, the help that God's given me, and maybe be able to pass on to other people a little bit. Mm. No, that's great. Um, we want to, just for the sake of our listeners, talk a little bit um, about different types of uh, communion or methods of communion. Could you, could you talk about that a little bit, um, intinction and so forth? Sure. Um, well, Jesus instituted the, the, the Lord's Supper at the Last Supper, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it's a it's a meal to build up His people in the benefits of union with Him. Um, so it, it's something that should be administered frequently and uh, with great joy, and uh, people should be you know encouraged to recognize the riches of what God has given them and is giving them in Christ. Um, so the, the way, you know, the way that it's done is the, the reading of the words of institution and then the breaking of the bread and then the passing of the cup. And the particular details of that, you know, it can be done in different ways given the different makeup of a congregation or the different makeup of a building that they're in or whatever. Mm-hmm. But the, the word... And those elements, you know, the, the bread and the wine, they need to be visible, and people need to see them and be able to take them and, uh, and enjoy them. I, I don't support the idea of intinction as such. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it has kind of a medieval background, and some churches are kind of moving back in the, desi- in the direction of, of, of desiring to be more medieval or even Roman Catholic, and they're thinking about communion, which I think is a big mistake. Uh, so I'm not really in favor of that approach to the way of doing it. Um, it, it should be like a meal. Mm. And uh, the way Jesus did it was the bread first and then the cup. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, and just uh, so people that are listening in know, intinction, Howard, right, is when uh, I was at a church one time, and it actually was a well. I shouldn't say it was a mainline Protestant church. I'll just say that that yeah. was uh, that did uh, you know uh, that method. And just for anybody listening in, says what's intention? Mm-hmm. Uh, that is dipping the bread into the uh, wine or the juice, right? And sort of consuming yeah. the the soaked bread. Um, any idea? What is the background on that? You said it, it has a more medieval thing. I'm wondering. I mean, to me, I don't mean to sound crass, it almost seems like it's a time-saving effort, um, you know, so that you're you're imbibing one thing instead of two. I don't know. It's a... Well, Greg, I think it's become, I think it's become that. I yeah. think that's what it has become. People want, they, churches kind of want to get people through it, which kind of defeats the purpose. The, the original idea was that with transubstantiation, where the the wine is actually 
changed into the blood of Christ and the bread actually into the flesh of Christ, they didn't, they didn't want to spill any of the wine. Right. They didn't want to spill that. And so that was what motivated the original move in that direction. But, of course, we're not endorsing anything like that. That's a misunderstanding of what the Lord's Supper is. Yes. But now I think it's it's largely pragmatic. Like, you know, the big line of people want to move them along through this. Yeah. Event. But I... That sort of defeats the purpose. You know? I know, I know. It's the uh, maybe the Protestant evangelical equivalent of that. We struggle with this sometimes. Is um, you know when you're planning a worship service, and you know we we have a pretty contemporary approach here in our church. You know there is the uh, sort of awkward moment where nobody wants to admit it. There, but they'll say, "Yeah, the band can come up while that guy's praying." Uh, you know, it's sort of the the overly pragmatic approach, and you think, "Wow, yeah. I, I, it, you feel strange sometimes talking about those things." But that's that's a very interesting point. Yeah. yeah. Um, can you give us a little bit about the book's uh, summary, just for the audience out there, some things that they can expect to find in the book? Sure. Well. Um Initially, what I wanted to do was provide meditations for pastors and for all Christians as the pastors would present the Lord's Supper. So I I had provided a bunch of those because we'd done that um, weekly at our church for all those years. And I thought, well, I want to capture these and help people so, so that they can hear some of the richness of what it means to be in union with Christ, forgiveness, sonship, um, the sanctification, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the, the, the suffering of our Lord for us, which now benefits us in His grace, all those things. And as I thought about it, I thought, well, you know, I better write something about the theology that underlies this, because there's all sorts of differences of opinion about that. Sure. Mm. So I wrote the first part of the book. I actually started with the second part, and then I went back. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And the first part is foundations. So in that part, I talk about theology of the supper, and it briefly, and then um, inviting how how pastors ought to invite people to the Lord's table, and then basic themes. Yeah, that third chapter is is called uh, basic themes, and it explores the different things that the Apostle says about the Supper as he states how it should be observed in the churches. Mm. Yes, and quick word to pastors out there that are listening, uh, and I know we, we, we have a number of you. Thank you for listening, yeah. uh, first of all, because uh, we always want this to be of benefit to everybody, but you know, pastors as well to maybe hear, um, hear some table-side chat about things that aren't often addressed in a monologue format. Um, I can say, Howard, to the, the pastors listening, uh, I am incredibly enthusiastic about your book, largely because of those meditations. Um, you know, we, uh, I'll just out myself, we do communion here at our church once per month. We normally do it the first Sunday of every month. And uh, it is often uh, a challenge. I'm normally the one who does it. I am the, the lead pastor. Sometimes one of the others will do it or one of the elders occasionally. And it's always the, how do you lead in to communion? It's not something you just want to tack on at the end of the service. You want a meaningful time to lead in. Often the sermon lends itself, it always should, and sort of in the Spurgeon, you know, always being able to make a direct beeline to the cross uh, from any text you're in, that's very helpful counsel. 
But the meditations, I just want to say to pastors, are outstanding. And you take on some really tough ones, Howard. For instance, I have never, well, I have not preached expositionally through the Gospel of John in our current church context. I look forward if the Lord gives me the chance to do that. But John 6, eating and drinking uh, Jesus himself, eating his flesh, drinking his blood, obviously one of the most um, shocking passages on the face of it initially for believers when they read it, particularly new believers. And I've never used that as a communion meditation, although it is excellent. And uh, you did that in the book, and I have to say that's a standout for me. Uh, Your meditation there on John 6 uh, was absolutely excellent. And I just thought that, so you've obviously done that in real time in your church setting before to prepare uh, people to take the Lord's Supper, correct? Yes. That, yes. Uh, it's uh, it, it, the, the, the striking language that the Lord uses <clears throat> is about the, the real fellowship we have with him in union with him by faith. Yes. And, um, that, of course, is the centerpiece of what it means to be a Christian. Yes. Uh, not, not eating his physical flesh. That wouldn't do us any good anyway. It is actually having union with him by the Holy Spirit. And I think that's what he's talking about in John chapter 6. Yes. And, and that meditation, Howard, and just to everybody listening, is, is excellent. And you do a number of them from the Old Testament as well. Uh, as you say, uh, I think uh, anticipation of the Lord's... Um, uh, supper and obviously dealing with the Passover and uh, you know the the shedding of blood and and just really thoughtful biblically rich meditations that are good for the soul personally but to use those in corporate worship um, I, I think is uh, I mean, the book is excellent and and uh, by the way we're not getting paid to say that so yeah. <laughs> uh, you know uh, in fact Howard I'm, I'm going to say now you know PNR as I told you I actually tried to get one of my books published with PNR. Got rejected, uh, and now in a divine irony, we have all these P and R authors on to talk about their books, just to keep me humble. So, um, you know, <laughs> thank you, thank you for that, Chad. Uh, but I, uh, I wanted to talk to you a little bit, Howard, just so our listeners can get a sense of the diversity, as you mentioned earlier, diversity of conviction, opinion on these matters. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, in a very layman's sense, lay out my understanding of the spectrum of communion. Tell me if I'm right, partially right, and and you know, feel free. You know, this like uh, I, I'm doing an impromptu exercise that my seminary professor is now critiquing. Uh, as I understand the spectrum, on, on the far end, you would have the Roman Catholic concept, similar to the Orthodox, but the Orthodox a little more muted. Where, you know, as you said earlier, transubstantiation, that when the priest, uh, you know, says the words of consecration, prays, that the actual elements of bread and wine transform uh, and uh, are actually considered the literal, physical body and blood of Jesus Christ uh, on the one end. Perhaps on the other end, and you mentioned Zwingli, you know, uh, one of the early, early reformers. Uh, who would have what's called the memorialist position. I've heard it sometimes sort of the sheer symbolism position, that the meal is um, nothing is necessarily happening uh, on a spiritual level, so to speak, other than in the minds of those participating, they are remembering the death of Jesus Christ, sort of an in-memoriam approach. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so those being the two ends, uh, moving from the Catholic view a little bit more towards, for lack of better terms, of the middle, you have the Lutheran view, and I know Luther himself never used the term uh, consubstantiation, but many have used it to describe his position, which was uh, that the, the presence of Jesus uh, is literally there, but not, not the elements themselves, but sort of a in, with, and under, or in, with, and through the elements. So uh, a friend of mine calls that position Catholic light, um, and I'll just say that and let you comment in a minute. Then there's this area, and this is where I think you're coming from, which has often been, <laughs> been called Calvin's position, which I would see as between Luther's, between Z- uh, Zwingli's, that yeah. uh, the, the spiritual presence of Jesus is there at communion in a special way, uh, and I'll let you define that, uh, so that there is a real communing with Jesus himself in the act of participating in the Lord's Supper. So, no, it's not Luther's view where you're getting rather physical and into this where is the locus of Jesus' presence and, you know, all those things. Um, a- am I right on that? Is that spectrum more or less close or is it way off? No, no, no. You're, that's very good. No, that's very, very good. The, you know, the, the, what the Reformation did so this would be Zwingli, Luther, Calvin, etc., would say, this is not a sacrifice. Mm-hmm. The, the table is, it's a table, not an altar. Yes. That was a major change, and that they're all together on that. They're, I think they're exactly biblical on that. Yes, yes. And so you would say, I mean, I don't know if you come out in the book and say it quite boldly, but would you say Calvin's position is your position? There might oh, be yeah. some nuance. You're right. Oh, no, absolutely. No, I'm, I'm very happy to identify with that. We have real fellowship, not with not with a suffering Christ, but with the Christ who's already suffered and now been exalted to God's right hand. Yes. And so by the presence and power of the Spirit of Christ with us in the Church and in that meal, we have real fellowship with the resurrected Christ. And that is a rich, profound wonderful privilege that we it's our greatest privilege in this world it anticipates what we'll have in glory when we're all raised from the dead yes uh, around our lord jesus so yeah i think calvin has it right um or had it right and uh, uh it, it's it's more than something that happens in our mind it's something that happens with the whole of ourselves in union with the lord who's in glory yes Yes. And so uh, let me ask you then, Howard, to, to put some real uh, meat on this, because uh, I have a number of friends that are in the PCA. I, I was in the PCA myself for a number of years in seminary. It was Really, for me, it was the baptism issue uh, that changed. But I've always said I, I cut my theological teeth in the PCA, uh, benefited tremendously. You know, many of my favorite teachers to this day are, are right there. Um, so communion for me, I, I, I want to say this as well, again, to those listening in, this book will make you think deeply about communion. I'm thinking about it in a way, frankly, I haven't in years, uh, which may be to my discredit, but I'm not afraid to put that out there. Um, I'm thankful for this book. It's made me think deeply about, uh, the matter of the Lord's supper, which often to Christians is somewhat rote and ritual. Uh, obviously Howard, the fact that your church practiced it every week 
Um, my experience among evangelical Christians is that's probably unusual. Uh, yeah. I mentioned to, uh, to you earlier, we do it uh, um, uh, once a month, which, again, one of the things I love in your book, you're very clear that there is freedom on this issue. You, you're just yeah. very open to say that you've chosen to do it the way you have. Um, I'm imagining, and I don't think I'm uh, far out here, that your understanding of the really communing with Jesus in the meal uh, informs how often you practice it. Would that be right? Uh, yes. Yes, that's true. I, I don't want to make an issue of, you know, how often it should be as such, because I don't think Scripture says. Sure. Mm. So sure. If, we make, if we make that the focus of, <clears throat> of our attention, then we'll get into an argument and not get anywhere. Sure. But the, Agreed. But the wonder, the wonder of it is, just as you've said, Jesus Christ comes to us. Calvin loved to say this. Jesus Christ comes to us clothed in the gospel. Mm. So when we hear the Word of God, we're having fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit. The same exact thing is true with regard to the sacraments and uh, both the Lord's Supper and baptism. And uh, yes, that's that's what's what's there. You know, God wants to give us grace. He wants to strengthen our faith. Uh, and so, yes, we use the we use the supper or celebrate the supper as often as as we're able to do it. Yes, yes. Well, if I can, Howard, because this is, uh, I think, of uh, going to be of real interest to our listeners, uh, I think we've got a pretty diverse audience. It's probably predominantly Reformed, mm-hmm. um, uh-huh. at least in its uh, soteriology. And we get folks that are, you know, sort of higher church OPC uh, or, or PCA. We get, you know, charismatic Calvinists. We, <laughs> we get a whole crew on sure. here. Um, I would say, and just all my cards on the table, that I, I leaned to the memorialist position. Uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you, and, and I'm, I'm very open to just hear your thoughts on this and, and again, sure. let, let the Lord shape my own. Um, one of the, the challenges I had in thinking of this, uh, this issue about the, the presence of Christ, and again, I'm going to use layman's language, being more special, for lack of a better word, in communion is does that make the presence of Christ every day for the New Covenant believer, uh, for lack of a better word, <laughs> run of the mill? So the presence of Christ is really special in communion when Nathan and I go out and have a pizza together and enjoy a beer together and and uh, pray before that meal um, – what do you see as the difference? And again, I'm not trying to trap you. I'm really trying to get a sense. Yeah. What's, no, this, what's going on? That's a great on? question. No, no, no. That's a great question. I appreciate it very much. And I, I want to say two things. One is, you don't have more Christ in the Lord's Supper than you have every day. Mm-hmm. You do not. Because the, the reality of being a Christian is that by the presence of the Spirit of Christ in you, by his representation of you on, in his death and resurrection, you're united with him, and you have all the benefits of union with him all your life, every minute. There's never a separation yeah. from the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Robert Bruce, who was a second-generation reformer after John Knox in Scotland, said, do you get a better Christ in the Lord's Supper? No, but you may get Christ better. Ah, mm. Interesting. That's uh, sort of a nice uh, a play on words way to say that this is a way that God seals 
to our hearts and gives us a physical experience that seals to our faith, the faith that we have as believers, the benefits of being one with Jesus Christ. Excellent. So, so yes, I, 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 I want to say, yes, we get Christ. We may get Christ better, but we don't get a different Christ. Yes, well said. Well said. So, Howard, let, let me just throw this out there then. So, so would your thought and idea of that be um, when Greg and I are out, you know, hanging out, talking about movies, eating a pizza, getting a beer? Yes, Christ is with us, but our thoughts aren't necessarily zeroed in and focused on Christ. We're in communion, they typically are, and so that's where our relationship might be deeper or grow deeper because our our attention and focus is settled more on Christ. Would that be fair? Or? Yes, it is. And and then think about the, this this sort of aspect of it. You're thinking about precisely this, that Christ gave his flesh and blood in your place. Mm-hmm. That's the focus of the supper. That's why, we, you know, the, the words are... Um, my body given for you, my my the blood of the new covenant shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. And the Holy Spirit is reminding you and bringing you to a stronger faith in the 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 effects of that great transaction that took place that God did on your behalf. The centerpiece of it, of course, is the forgiveness of sins because Christ suffered in our place. And um so it, it, isn't, it isn't just that we're thinking about it more. It's presented to us in a very graphic way, and uh, the Spirit is sealing and, and encouraging and strengthening in that light. Yes, yes, Howard. No, thank you. That That's very good, and, and thank you for letting us ask you that. We're not trying to lay a, a trap for you, just really trying to, <laughs> to get a sense, because that's something, I, I think that phrase by Bruce that you, you gave is helpful. Uh, I know Spurgeon had a similar phrase on, um, again, I'm paraphrasing, but I think he once said, uh, Wesley and Whitfield uh, can certainly preach the gospel better than I could, but they cannot preach a better gospel. And, you know, <laughs> Great. Just, yeah. just reminds me of that same sort of turn that no, you don't get more of Christ at communion, um, you know, but you you might get him better. I, I think that's that's helpful for me. And again, I'm really Good. thinking about these things, Howard. And I'm not just buttering you up largely because of your book, and I think you've uh, written it very pastorally. And on that note, one of the things I love that you said, I, I've been trying to find ways to express this to our congregation in recent years, and uh, I wish I'd had your section of the book to share, and I probably will in the future, you talk about sometimes a misapplication when Christians are urged to examine themselves before the meal. Uh, I remember as a younger Christian, there were times sort of by looking at the examples around me of very sincere, committed Christians that would not take communion uh, then I would sort of uh, follow suit because they would say things like, man, Greg, I when, when the pastor said examine yourself and I just thought, man, I have treated my wife so badly this week or I just have been so prayerless and so faithful, I wasn't going to take communion. Um, and I did that sometimes. It always felt a little bit strange. I've urged people in recent years that I think that's the wrong application. I don't want to steal your thunder, but you mm. did a really 
to me, it was very biblical, very sensitive. You even quote Calvin in there that experienced the same thing uh, in, in, in his lifetime and, and was aware of that dynamic. Could you unpack that a little bit? And what does it mean to examine ourselves? And should that forbid us from taking communion? Yes, that's a great question. Thanks for that. I, I had the same experience yeah. myself. As, as a young believer, and even as a young minister, honestly, before I thought this through more carefully and really, well, a, a couple of things. One is, Paul says, let a man examine himself, and so let him eat. Yes. So the, the thrust is a positive one. He doesn't say, examine himself and not eat. Yes. He says, eat. <laughs> yeah. Well, the examination is this. Am I trusting Christ? Am I serving Christ and doing that, doing that by the strength of the grace of God? Yes. So as I look at that, do I see things that demand repentance in my life? Yes. I'm absolutely obligated to repent. But the supper is part of how the Lord strengthens me to do that. Mm-hmm. So I don't receive the bread and the wine or the juice. I don't receive those things as a kind of reward for being uh, far enough in my Christian life. That's not the point at all. It's God encouraging and strengthening me with my relationship with his son to live for him. So just to say it, and I say this in the book, I say, you know, as we're aware of things that we need to make right with other people. We need to resolve to do that. Yes. And then by the strength that God gives us, receive the supper and then go and do it. Yes. You know? Yeah. It's, yeah. Which is, so it's, 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 it's a strengthening. It's a gracious event. And faith, you know, faith doesn't look inside me at myself and say, what am I? Right. Faith looks outside itself to Christ. Mm. And that's the beauty of it. Excellent, Howard. I, uh, you had said in there in that same section, and this is how I used to think, and I just thought you nailed it. You said uh, making those relationships right, um, going and apologizing, seeking other people's forgiveness, um, you know, setting things right in your life are not prerequisites of the supper, but are post-requisites. Mm. Yeah. I, I love that. Because it's the idea that, yes, as I'm aware of these, and I, I am meeting the Lord at his table, and I love that, the strength that should come from the experience should enable me to go and do those things. And uh, I, I love that because I, you think about it, it's a celebration of the goodness of God in the gospel uh, and what Christ has done in laying his yeah. life down for us. And it's strange. I almost think the only way that that pragmatically works in a person's mind and tell me if you think this is right Howard is to yeah. have somewhat of a Catholic view of almost mortal and venial sins that mm-hmm. uh, you know right. yeah, I, I'm having a good week uh, and I'm thinking what? I mean we're, <laughs> we're train wrecks apart from the gospel and you know Christ yeah. tells us in John 15 that apart from him we can do nothing so it, we almost have to have such a reductionistic view of what a good week looked like and what a bad week looks like that we're, we're kind of missing the whole transforming point of, uh, of the gospel itself. Would you, would you say that's right? Absolutely. And, I, and you know, you, you don't absolutely, I could agree completely. You, you don't have to have 
a Roman Catholic doctrine to get into a kind of works or legalistic mentality. And Christians do that, and yes. churches do that, that, you know, where people think, oh, I'm not good enough. Well, that's the point. That's yes. right. Yeah. But you have a Savior who satisfies the Father on your behalf. Yes, well, and on a similar vein, Howard, I was wondering if you could comment as well on what is sometimes called fencing the table, and, and you do talk about this in, in your book. Now, I believe I'm right on this. Um, I should be because I just finished it last night, <laughs> the, the pre-publication <laughs> copy. We're so thankful for, uh, for, for PNR letting us look at that. Um, you, I, I believe, uh, I know there's debate on this, but you're comfortable with any true believer in Christ taking communion who is not necessarily a member of that local congregation. Is that correct? I am. I think, yes. I think a person ought to be uh, what Scripture requires. A person ought to, a, a professing Christian it needs to have been baptized and be a part of a local body where the gospel is preached and be welcomed there, but not necessarily a member of the particular church that's, that's where he's uh, taking the Lord's Supper. Excellent. So, yeah, so that, that's, I, I think that's biblical. That's a little narrower than um, a lot of people's view of it, a lot of churches' view, but I think it's important. Yes, yeah. and uh, I, um, this is something I practically struggle with, and I'd love your thoughts on this, and I bet a lot of people would. Pastorally, you look out at your congregation on a Sunday morning, and likely there are folks that are there on the arms of guests, or are in the arms of members as guests, and they are uh, potentially unbelievers. Uh, you want to give some instruction for them not to take it. Um, yeah. how, how do you go about that? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't, I, I don't find that easy. No, as a matter of fact, I think that's challenging. Um, well, I, I always say, you, you've been baptized. You're a professing Christian, and you're welcome to take communion at your own church. Mm-hmm. And then beyond that, I'll go further. I'll say, you know, if, if you've if you've not come to Christ, come to Him. Yes, He He offers Himself to you. The Father offers Him to you. Come to Him and trust in Him. And when you've done that, then make that known in order that you might be welcomed to the Lord's table. Yes. So, but I, I know that, that there's a certain scandal of the cross at that point because you're drawing a line or recognize that. But I, I don't want to. I don't want it to be, you know, kind of a negative experience for people, if it's possible that it not be. But at the same time, Lord's Supper is for believers, and it's yes. part of the fellowship of the, the saints together. And therefore, that line needs to be drawn, even if drawn in a gracious way, if I can put it that way. Yes, no, well said. And again, I, I can see the wisdom of, you know, many years in pastoral ministry, because you're you're... Again, when I was just a fresh seminarian, I, I didn't really think about those things. It was all just what is right, what is wrong, <laughs> don't worry about what unbelievers think. And uh, I, I appreciate your sensitivity there, Howard. I, yeah. I, I've learned from some other pastors, too. I think we all struggle with how to say it. How do you draw that line of distinction? Because I think it should be drawn um, in a way that doesn't come across punitive to the unbeliever. Right. You know, right. and... Um, Sometimes I even say that, just that you know, this is not, this is not to uh, make you feel bad. This is not to shame you. I'll say, try to use this as an opportunity uh, if, if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ uh, as your Savior and Lord uh, to think about these people around you, what they're doing, 
uh, what has happened in their lives. You know, um, yeah. you know don't, don't just uh, you know use this as a church thing. And you know, I'll try to say we're not into you know uh, just church for the sake of churchiness and, and try to use yeah, language right. that makes that person feel. Uh, that they're not being singled out and uh, you know given a scarlet letter or something. So uh, you, again, you talk about that yeah. in, in the book, and uh, really, really appreciate that. Um, were you going to jump in, Nathan? Yeah. I um, I, well, first of all, I just wanted to mention again, we are speaking with Howard Griffith. Um, his book, Spreading the Feast. Um, you know, since we are here. Trying to trying to talk the book up, yes, just let you yes, know what it is again. Absolutely, um, and also um, letting you know that the book is going to be coming out in December. So it's not out yet; it is in December. So that's why when Greg and I refer to the fact we don't have the book, we literally don't have the book. No yes. one does. Yes. Um, so uh, it is coming out in December. And Howard, I wanted to just talk to you real quick about. Um, in in the Bible, when it talks about the Lord's Supper, and it seems like there are two two Lord's Suppers mentioned, almost this meal and then communion. Um, and, and it seems to me like some people misconstrue the two. And as we were talking about earlier, some of the restrictions for not participating in the Lord's Supper, the meal, could you comment on that? Yeah, I'll be happy to, Nathan. If you tell me what you mean, too, too different. I'm not entirely sure what you're thinking there. Um, the the way I've always understood it is um, in Corinthians, Paul will refer to the Lord's Supper. He'll refer to a meal. Um, oh, oh, oh I and see then now. and yeah, then he'll also yeah. refer to what we know as communion. Um, and see. so I know people have gotten the two confused, and I know sometimes those requirements when it talks about you know settling things with your neighbor or, you know, even, even in the particular case, making sure, you know, you, you eat before you come and participate different things like that. So could you comment maybe on those two and the distinctions so that people have a clearer understanding um, of that? Sure. Sure. Well, Jesus instituted the the Lord's supper at the last supper, which was the Passover meal. Mm -hmm. So the, the saying about the bread, this is my body came at the beginning, and the saying about the cup came at the end. Mm -hmm. So in between was the normal Passover meal, and that seems to have been um, the same thing that was happening in Corinth. Mm -hmm. Not that there was a Passover there, but that they were actually having a meal with the the bread saying and the bread broken at the beginning, and then uh, the cup at the end. And, of course, the problem in Corinth was that wealthy people in the church were eating a lot, but other people didn't have the same, apparently they didn't have the same provision made for them, and so they were kind of shunted to the side, or they felt they they were made to be ashamed. Mm. Um, And this is what Paul is correcting in 1 Corinthians. Mm. Normally now we don't do that. We don't have... Um, the bread first, the meal in between, and the cup after. I'm not saying I, I would be definitely opposed to that, but we just do it together. Mm-hmm. We just have the bread and then have the cup, and um, that's you know that that's normal practice. I think that's perfectly sound practice and biblical practice. Mm-hmm. Yes, and in that vein, Howard, um, a quick question here. You know, sometimes there's debate. Uh, Nathan and I were talking about this earlier: the wine or grape juice. Uh, just uh, your thoughts on that, because obviously a number of churches, I don't know what your church has done, uh, use grape juice. Uh, you know, I always 
I've got some real diehards that have come to me sometimes. Why don't we use wine, Dutcher, for communion? And, um, you know, they, they know that we're not teetotalers, so I think that's why they're asking that question. Yeah. Uh, pragmatically yeah. speaking, I mean, the issue of alcoholism being such, you know, an epidemic in our culture, sometimes yeah. that ties into decisions, uh, younger people taking it. Just, just your thoughts on that whole issue in general. Sure. Well, um, I don't think there's any doubt but that what Jesus used uh, at the Last Supper was actual wine. I don't think there's any real question about that. And I'm sure you would agree with me on this. The Bible doesn't prohibit the the drinking of wine. What it prohibits is drunkenness. Yes. Mm -hmm. So so just that is sort of a basic thing. Um, So we... In churches where I've pastored, we've had wine at the supper. We've also had cups of grape juice. Okay. And what we what we do is we just put a, a, an announcement in the bulletin, you know, that says to this effect: if if because of conscience or health, you're not able to to drink the wine, there is grape juice provided for you. You know, around the outer rim of the tray or something like that, and hmm. that I think solves the problem. Although for some people, they're so, there are always some people who have a big problem with this, and I think it's largely, I don't, I don't mean to criticize them as such, but I think it's largely a cultural problem right. more than a, an actual biblical problem, if right. I can put it that yeah. way. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I want to respect them, and I want to take them seriously, but I don't think that cultural thrust should really compromise how we do it, right. uh, you know, how we observe the supper. Right. Yeah, because I've had some people ask me, are we, you know, are we missing a little something there? You know, you know, obviously we're we're not with Jesus uh, historically. I want to be careful. I say that at the Last Mm -hmm. Supper, Uh, you know, so it's it's going to be different uh, in different times, cultures, etc. Yeah. uh, Available bread, etc. But I I get asked that occasionally. I thought got to get that out for a few people that Mm ask me that question. And, And so that's interesting, though. So you would actually list in your bulletin or program. You know, something like, you know, obviously on the outer rim, you've got grape juice or wine mm-hmm. in the center and just sort of let that stand in and of itself. And part of it, Howard, is there is a, a sensitivity, obviously, in uh, the West here, or I should say America, because children in Europe, as you know, I know I my wife's aunt and uncle were, were missionaries there in France with the, uh, with the navigators for 17 years. And, mm-hmm. you know, the thought of children drinking some table wine uh, was incredibly common. Uh, and and none of these children were <laughs> alcoholics or uh, right. were you know developing problems. So I I would share the the thought with you. There is a cultural issue going on. Um, Nathan, you yeah. probably prefer wine, wouldn't you? Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, Nathan works at a uh, at a local liquor store. Howard, our listeners. Know <laughs> so I'm, I'm 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 looking at his his little emblem on his shirt, you know, because he's going to work later. So I. I, I know where he stands on that's that. That's right. <laughs> oh, that's rich. I love that. <laughs> oh. Well, Howard, um, thank you so much for your time. It's been great. And once again, we do just want to mention Spreading the Feasts coming out in December. December 11th. Yep, December 11th. So um, when it comes out, hopefully we're going to get PNR to uh, send us a couple copies. Um, and then we will, at that point, make an announcement for uh, a contest so that we can you know, send those books out to a few of our listeners. Yes. Well, thanks so much for your encouragement. I'm very grateful to you. 
Well, no, Howard, thank you for writing this book. Again, Spreading the Feast, PNR Publishing, Howard Phillips, real labor of love for the church. And again, uh, everybody will benefit, but pastors uh, that I know struggle sometimes uh, with introducing the Lord's Supper in the congregation in a way that is meaningful, that is rich, that isn't just a repeated pattern from previous weeks, I think will benefit greatly from this book. So again, Howard, thank you. My pleasure. And real quick, it was Howard Griffith, not Howard Phillips. <laughs> oh, did I say Phillips? <laughs> Forgive me, Howard. You were so gracious on that. Yes, uh, <laughs> Howard Griffith. Not to be confused with Peter Griffith. That's somebody else. That's right. <laughs> so we want to make sure we have all that down. Hopefully in future podcasts that you do, you'll have more serious hosts. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but it's been uh, All right, okay. so we're going to go ahead and sign off now. Guys, we just rocked the Caspa. Rocked it. These guys are 11.